I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and good evening to everyone watching uh, at home. And welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a pleasure to be welcoming Helen Thompson and Anne Pettifor this evening. Um, Helen's a professor of political economy at the University of Cambridge, and she was a regular panellist on the popular Talking Politics podcast, as well as a columnist for The New Statesman. And she's the author of the book we're here to talk about tonight, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, just out from OUP. Uh, Anne Pettifor is the director of the Policy Research in Macroeconomics Network, uh, among other honours, in 2018, she was awarded the Hannah Arendt Prize. Her most recent books include The Production of Money and The Case for the Green New Deal, both with Verso, the last of which was launched with a rowdy event in this very shop, um, following which events were put on pause for a long while. And this is, uh, this is the second since we, have, since we have restarted the events programme in person. Um, I have a bunch of um, cautions for the in-person audience, which don't apply to the audience watching at home. Um, the fire exits for the shop are here and here, and just make your own way to them if you hear the fire alarm. Um, please turn off your phone if you haven't done so already, and when you rise at the end of the evening in rapturous applause, please don't kick over your wine glasses if you place them <laughs> under your seat. Um, though I don't suppose anyone would do that deliberately. Um, Anne and Helen will be in conversation for about 45 minutes, following which there'll be time for questions from the floor with this, the roving mic, and also questions from the digital audience, which uh, Claire will text up to me from downstairs. Um, so without further ado, welcome Anne, welcome Helen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And welcome to our digital audience as well. Um, First of all, can I say this is a wonderful book, and um, I hope you all get to read it. If you're like me, and your most erogenous zone is between your ears, you'll absolutely love this book. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a book that is about truth-telling, essentially, truth-telling about our history and about aspects of our history which we've buried. Um, but it's also a book that you, if you are going to read it, you must have at your side a copy of the Oxford Atlas of the World, 
I had to have my battered olive copy with me because I had never heard of Venspils in Latvia or Urengoi in the Western Siberian Basin or Uzhorod in what is now Western Ukraine or indeed of the Turkish coastal port of Kehan. Had you heard of those places? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, mm-hmm. impressive. Um, so it's a book that you have to read. If you're like me, you need uh, to work your way around because it is geographically um, uh, wide, and, and that's what's so exciting about it, both the sort of historical dimensions, the geographic dimensions, but also the economics, and, and in particular, the monetary uh, economics of it all. So thank you very much for all the work that must have gone into it, Helen. It's a really interesting book. Um, one of the things that I think is most interesting is the links that are made between global energy and the global financial system. And I think we'll come to talk about that. But I wanted to begin with a story that I found absolutely riveting and that I had not heard before. And I'd like you to talk about it. And that's the story of Suez and our understanding of what happened at Suez and, and the role of Anthony Eden and so on. And in the story, as you tell it, was quite shocking to me. So could we talk about that for a while? Yeah, certainly. Uh- I must admit, I was a bit taken aback when I realised the story that I was going to tell about Suez. And actually, I think it was last week, I went back and looked at the original essay that I wrote to myself and thought, how much did I actually say about Suez and that? And I had got it there, but nothing like in the same way in which I um, did. And I remember I remember really well when I was writing this, the story about Suez. It was sort of autumn of 2019, probably late autumn of 2019, because I got a bit behind. Um, and I, in some sense, grown up with the story of Suez, at least as a student of politics. And I remember it was always a story where people would say, oh, if you talk to a British official of a certain generation and they mention, you mention the word Suez to them, it would give them shivers because it was this moment. Yeah. It was always presented as this moment when the British elite realised that, um, that the empire is coming to an end and it's a moment of imperial hubris in which... Um, Britain's taught in the, this narrative a shocking lesson about its place in the world by um, President Eisenhower and it finishes off Anthony Eden's career and Harold um, Macmillan um, becomes Prime Minister. Now obviously the way that that story is told you do learn when you're told it about the French role in it and the Israeli um, role in it but it's still very much cast as a story about British imperial hubris uh, and that this is the moment after which nothing is going to be the same again. Um, the problem is, is that nothing is going to be the same with that narrative, is nothing is going to be the same again, but it isn't really because the British are being punished for their imperial illusions in the, the Middle East. <laughs> the story ultimately is is um, about the fact that Western energy interests in the, in, in the Middle East, and I mean by that fundamentally Western European energy interests, but also in the in some sense the way in which they've been structured in Washington since the beginning of the Cold War during Harry Truman's um, administration means that Britain is supposed to behave like an imperial power in the Middle, Middle East. Americans don't want to be there and they expect um, Britain to take military responsibility for looking after Western European energy interests and they want that in part because the place at the beginning of the Cold War years, where they don't, Americans don't want West Europeans buying oil from, is the Soviet Union. Not that the Soviet Union's got them. I mean, its its oil sector's been quite badly damaged by the the, 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 the Second World War, but it's it's certainly beginning to get reconstructed um, after Stalin's 
um, after Stalin's um, death. So what happens in Syria is, is, is that the West Europeans, and I mean by this, the British, the French, the Italians, the West Germans in, in particular, are just horrified at this idea that actually when the British and the French use their military power in alliance with Israel to try to do what they're supposed to do, which is to protect West European energy interests in the Middle East, the Americans not only say you can't do that, but they use American financial power to bring the military operation to um, an end. Eisenhower essentially refuses to uh, export any emergency oil um, to um, Western Europe, or at least it makes it very difficult for Britain to um, pay for it. So what we see in Western Europe after that is a sense in which all the players in different ways say, we have to change this. Mm. And particularly the French and the Germans, the West Germans say that we have to change this. And out of this, amongst other things, it's not the only thing that comes out of it, um, is this turn in Western Europe towards the Soviet Union. So if there's a set of energy risks or a, a set of risks or security risks, I should say, perhaps, of importing oil from the Middle East, that need to import oil from the Middle East can't be changed quickly, but there's going to be an alternative. And it's going to come from the, 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 the Soviet Union. And out of that moment begins the, the pipelines that are built um, beginning of the 1960s to take that oil from the Soviet Union into Western Europe. And one of the places where the pipelines go through um, is Ukraine. Except, of course, at that point, Ukraine is part of the Soviet Union. It's not an independent, yeah. it's not an independent um, state. So in this lies the origins of this West European, West European, or now broader European energy dependency um, upon um, on Russia. It came from this moment in which the United States wasn't prepared to tolerate Britain, Britain, France, doing what these governments thought was necessary in order to protect their interests. So, so basically, Eisenhower sabotages, you know, what, what Anthony Eden is trying to do and the French are trying to do. Mm. And what I found extraordinary about it is after the sabotage, we continue to think of the United States as, our, as a special relationship. You know, we've, you know we've, 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 uh, Britain has had to pay her, repay her debts to the United mm. States at the end of the war. And when France and Germany had their debts effectively eviscerated. We then, Britain is then sabotaged in this process, and yet we still talk about the special relationship. It doesn't affect the special relationship. I found that extraordinary. No, I think the thing, the, the, the difference in the British position compared to the French and German position after Suez is, is that Macmillan really wants to try to repair the American relationship. Right. But part of the reason why he's sort of thinks that that's worth it is, is because Britain's still in a stronger position in the Middle East than France which um, or any of the other West European countries that haven't really got any kind of um, presence there because Britain is still in a position where it can import oil consequentially priced in sterling and not in dollars yeah. from the, the smaller Gulf states in particular from Kuwait. Yeah. So then what we see in the 1960s is actually um, American president, particularly um, Lyndon Johnson, practically begging the British to stay in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, they actually turn their back on the idea that Eisenhower had implemented in 1956, that there's something problematic with British imperial power because it's in conflict with Arab nationalism. They, in the 60s, the American message is, no, you stay there. Yeah. Uh, uh, and when 
the pressures on the British currency on, on, on sterling had become so much by 1967 uh, that Harold Wilson's government um, turns Britain or commits Britain to withdrawing from what becomes called East of Suez and effectively right. finally ending the British Empire in, in the Middle East. The Americans are now horrified uh, <laughs> and they're now left with a problem in which they're sort of deeply trapped in the Vietnam War. They can't think about becoming militarily involved in themselves in the Middle East and that means they have to rely on Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, well that obviously has got lots of complications that are going to go on as we know with the Saudi relationship but by the end of the 1970s the Shah of Iran is out of power, um, the Ayatollah, the Islamic regime uh, and, and then Iran becomes not an American um, ally but an American enemy. Yeah. Um, so the Americans uh, are left with a, a complete mess really from their point of view um, after Britain has um, exited the Middle East even though Eisenhower was trying to say look the problem is Britain acting as an imperial power. Yeah now I, I found that interesting the story of Britain's sterling oil and then the dollarization of oil and I want to come to that but that's what's so good about the book is that it um, unearths all of this history that we've not understood or had talked about. I mean, the book is about all these um, underground, if you like, um, uh, pipelines um, and, and they are gas and oil pipelines and they spread around the world and we're not aware of them. It's as if they've, you know, they're beneath the earth really. And, and then there's the, the sort of the implication for um, geopolitical fault lines which actually emerge from these um, these pipelines which are largely invisible to us but which your book makes so visible. So I want to come back to another story that you reveal that I've never heard much about and that's the story of the South Stream as opposed to the North Stream. We, we hear so much about North Stream but we hear nothing about South Stream. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that is and why, why it failed? Yeah so the interesting thing here is a the, oh, let's go back to the 1990s and go back to this problem that Russia faced and this was a problem that was understood in the Yeltsin years, this is not just something that Putin um, brought to the table, mm. which is it, once the Soviet Union is dissolved uh, and Russia is still wanting to export oil and gas to European countries, these pipelines that had been constructed through the Soviet Union going eastwards, so going westwards, now go through the independent state of Ukraine and actually Belarus as well, but Belarus is less of a problem for Russia than Ukraine. So right away, from really from the late night, middle of the well, sort of second half of the 90s, you can see a desire in Moscow to say, we want to be less dependent on these pipelines that are going through Ukraine and we're going to use the seas. And so we're going to use the Baltic Sea, and we're going to use the Black Sea. And the Black Sea comes first, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only in 2005 um, when, when Putin's obviously well established in power by this point, and he reaches an agreement with the, the German government to create the Nord Stream pipeline that goes under the um, Baltic um, Sea. And it's the second of these Nord Stream pipelines that the German government has effectively terminated over the last week. The, 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 it, it will now not. It, it will now op not operate as a consequence of um, the Russian invasion of um, Ukraine. But Putin's keen also on using the Black Sea. There's already one pipeline that's built in the, 
in the in the latter part of the 1990s. And his first project is called South Street to to add more capacity to to, to the ones that are going under the Black Sea. His first project is called South Stream, and it's going to go under the Black Sea to Bulgaria. Um, the the previous one had gone to um, gone to um, Turkey. And it, what's interesting is is that the Nord Stream is is one is in place. Nord Stream two has been agreed. The the idea of, of, that it will be constructed has been agreed between the Germans and the the the, the, the Russians and others are involved as well in 2011. Putin's pushing for South Stream, and what we see is is that the European Commission and the Obama administration effectively ally together to bring South Stream to an end, to say basically it can't happen, to put intense pressure on the Bulgarian government to the right. point in which it's to the point in which it's um, the, the point at which it's cancelled. Now, it doesn't actually make a great deal of difference in the end because Putin just repackages it as what he calls now Turk Stream. And instead of going uh, under the Black Sea um, to Bulgaria, it goes under the Black Sea to Turkey, and then the gas comes back into Southern Europe through the, um, through the Balkans. But the interesting thing is, is there's a completely different attitude in the European Commission, yeah. and indeed in the Obama administration, to Nord Stream than to South Stream, even though it's exactly the same thing. Even though they're both of them are trying to cut and does Ukraine it, does out. Does it not to... end up in Italy? The Italians are the, 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 the Italians are uh, the Italians are very involved um, yeah. in it. And the Italians, um, Renzi, is the Italian prime minister when it gets um, cancelled, and he is furious mm. about the, the the difference between the way in which the Commission has treated Nord Stream. Hanging this. Um, keep, um, treated Nord Stream compared to the way you treated South, South Stream. Stream. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, again, that's a story that we've not heard anywhere. Um, you will not be surprised to know that the thing I was most interested in was the question of the dollarization, if you like, of oil. And I noticed you didn't mention the, 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 the deal that was done at the behest of Kissinger between the Saudi King Faisal and and the Americans and Nixon administration essentially in 1974, which was to commit the Americans to providing security for the Saudis in return for all Saudi oil sales being dollar being made in dollars being purchased in dollars, and the Saudis then recycling those dollars into U.S. Treasury bills, i.e. U.S. debt. I mean that for me was an extraordinary achievement for the Americans. And all it costs them is security for the Saudis. And it explains, as you say, the contradictions between uh, of the um, of American foreign policy in the Middle East between the Saudis on the one hand and Israel on the other. But it's explained by this deal. But uh, you know, the reason why I find that interesting is that we had before in the 1930s a gold standard, which was the globalization of finance uh, based on gold. And what we have after Nixon, which again you address in the books, um, unilateral uh, abandonment of Bretton Woods, is a new standard, and it's the oil standard essentially, uh, oil and um, and money printing, if you like, by the Federal Reserve, is really closely integrated, and so, and because oil's whereas gold was finite, it seems to me that oil appears infinite, so we have an infinite expansion in the liquidity created by the Federal Reserve. You know, and the two things are sort of tightly bound together. And I wonder why you didn't address, if you like, the system 
as, to, as opposed to actually, you know, the facts on the ground of what actually happened. Yeah, I have got I have got a bit about the the deals that the, the Nixon administration made to um, both with the Saudis directly and then for the Saudis affecting effectively acting um, with within OPEC for using dollars. I don't spend a lot of time on it. Um, yeah. it, it, it it's true. I think I'm a little bit skeptical about this idea that there's an oil standard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to be perhaps more convinced. And I, I do think it's very important for the Americans uh, after dollar gold convertibility has come to an end in 1971 um, for to protect the position of the dollar as the international currency. And I think that it's very important for them, even in its own terms, to be able to um, buy oil in dollars because at the same time as Bretton Woods is coming to an end, the United States is oil production pre to the shale boom has peaked. And the United States is on its way by the middle of the 1970s to be to being the world's largest oil importer. And it doesn't want to get into a position where it's using anybody else's currency in order in yeah. order in order to um, in order in order to do that. So I think it makes sense to say that the Nixon administration is well aware of the relationship between the dollar and oil and its importance. The reason why I'm a little bit skeptical is whether it's decisive is there is obviously something else going on at the same time, which is the growth of the euro dollar markets and the the importance of the dollar in essentially credit markets for internationalized banks. And I think that even if the dollar, sorry, even if the oil issue hadn't come into play, that might well have been sufficient to keep the dollar as an international currency. So at the very least, I think it's a it's a double determined yeah. thing. But I don't think it should be underestimated how important it was for the Americans in oil terms itself to be able to buy oil in dollars. Because they'd understood from the they'd understood from the British position that you had real advantages when you had your own currency and others were struggling. Yeah. Which is why in a way that Britain had been able to keep its position in the Middle East and, and having Kuwait as a significant sure. source of oil longer than the West other West European countries had when they'd been turning to um, Soviet um, oil. And we can see later on that China over the, from 2010 onwards really goes, it, it makes a big effort to try to find alternatives to having to use dollars for buying oil yeah. imports, not particularly successfully. So I completely buy that the Americans are thinking in these terms. I just think that the international banking side of it was sufficient reason probably to keep the dollar in the position it was. But it, it ties in. I mean, euro dollar arises out of unilater- Nixon's unilateral decision to dismantle Bretton Woods. Well, there's a euro dollar market. I mean, it, it gets they get bigger. <clears throat> yeah, but it, it grows afterwards. No, actually, you're wrong. I, I'm wrong. It, it does begin to evolve in the 60s. Yeah. You're right. And the uh, Bretton Woods ends in 71. But the deregulation process has begun to happen. But I still think it gives the Federal Reserve the capacity, if you like, to print 
as much as is needed in the global economy because people, because and I'm, I'm thinking I'm a South African, you know, South Africa has to find dollars yeah. to be able to import oil. And so, um, and indeed, or to, to buy pharmaceuticals. So this is an immense power now that the Federal Reserve has. But it's an, because of oil and because, because the Saudis are guaranteeing the United States' debt, it gives the Federal Reserve the power to print massive amounts of dollars. Do you, do you, it expands the capacity of the Federal I definitely Reserve. think that the, that the Federal Reserve in the pre-Volker bit, of the pre-Paul Volcker bit of the 1970s is significantly less constrained than yeah. it would otherwise be mm. if it weren't for this, yeah. if, it, if, if, if it weren't for this um, problem, yeah. And the reason why I think it's important is because I care about the environment and of course what we now have is this, you know, the, this very strong relationship between oil and the financial system mm. and we've got to break that link if we're going to deal with um, with the, the whole climate breakdown crisis. Anyway, so I, I, I just think that's, it, some of that's in the book, but it's a, a fascinating debate. And, and I really would like to know whether you think, you know, if we're going to be thinking, but I think the next question that comes out of that is, um, I, I, as I think we were saying before we started tonight, I used to be one of the uh, adherents of the theory of peak oil, and that theory has been discredited um, because it turns out that oil hasn't peaked, that it pops up, you know, in all sorts of places all of the time. And I wonder if you'd talk about that a bit more, mm. because that really impacts on, you know, where we go from here, especially given Ukraine. And I know everybody wants you to talk about Ukraine, but before we get on to that, what do you think about, about well, you know, the depletion rate? I think that there is a significant issue about I mean, uh, the depletion of resources generally. I, you know, I, I, I'm, and I'm, I'm not somebody who thinks that you just have endless technological innovation and that that gets around resource constraint um, yeah. issues. I think that the thesis, the original thesis about peak oil was applied to the American oil industry um, by a man called Hubbard. And he said essentially that American um, oil production would peak in 1970. Uh, and he made this prediction in the middle of the 1950s and he drew these curves that I don't pretend that I understand all the geological explanation of them to, to, to say why this was going to happen. The rate of depletion, the rate of depletion of wells would be this. And he was right. American oil production prior to the shale boom peaked in 1970. It didn't go on a completely linear downward trajectory because uh, production began in Alaska in, 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 in particular. So then what happened, I, I mean, I guess you were involved in this movement and I guess it was probably the latter part of the 90s it That's really right. got going, yeah. uh, the idea that there was going to be peak oil for the world. Mm. And there were predictions um, that it was going to happen probably around the middle of the 2000s, maybe a little bit later. Some of these arguments, it should be said, were taken pretty seriously by the George W. Bush's administration um, that was convinced that there was an oil supply um, problem. Yeah. The problem with the peak oil thesis, to my mind, was fundamentally that it, when it was applied in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was taking what was essentially a, an understanding from a geological concept, really, mm. Uh, and then trying to apply it to a world economy 
in which the oil producing countries had got a lot more going on than whether their wells were depleting at whatever rate that they were or they weren't um, depleting. Because we're talking about oil production in, for instance, Iran, which was under sanctions, and then Libya, which was under sanctions, under Iraq, which was under sanctions until the, the, the second Iraq war. And then that war was obviously quite destructive of, of Iraq's production for quite a long time. There was a domestic political conflicts in, in Venezuela, Venezuela and Nigeria. So the idea that actually there was constrained supply, which there certainly was in the middle of the 2000s, and is the explanation why oil prices, or one side of the explanation, I should say, why oil prices went as high as they did in 2008. It couldn't simply be for the reasons because the wells were depleting at a certain rate, because the supply was just very obviously politically constrained. Mm. And then you've got the, 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 the reality that how much oil is going to be produced and where it's going to be produced is also a financial um, question. Yeah. So all the way through this time, America's sitting on shale oil. It's not like it suddenly gets discovered no. in the 2010s when the shale oil boom um, took, took um, um, place. Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter had put great faith in shale as an alternative for yeah. the United States in the 70s, but it wasn't financially profitable or viable even to, 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 to engage in, in shale production. The big change happens after the 2007-8 crash in the monetary environment in which there are zero interest rates and quantitative easing means that there's both a lot of money flowing about that the, the shale companies have access to and because these investors are desperate for a return on their capital right. with interest rates being so low, um, they're willing to buy more risky bonds that the shale companies are um, issuing and turn a blind eye to the fact that there's not much prospect to making profit for yeah. um, very long. And what the shale oil boom shows is is that you can always find some more oil to um, extract. I mean, not I don't believe you can endlessly. Yeah. But but it will come at a much higher cost. Right. And and uh, what we've seen with the shale oil boom is is it also comes came with a very considerable geopolitical disruption before we also get onto the ecological yeah. you know, um, consequences um, of it. So I, I think that the, the peak oil thesis was when it, the version of it in the late 90s and the 2000s, it was right to, to try to get people to pay attention to the fact of there were serious things going on with the supply of oil that were going in the long term to have some fairly disruptive political consequences, but their causal understanding of what yeah. was going on with the supply ball, I don't think was was very good. Sure. Okay, one more thing I'd like to talk about, which is again unearthed in, in your book, and which we didn't really know much about, is Jimmy Carter. And, cause, and, I, and I think this is extremely important for the green story, for the sort of sustainability story. Jimmy Carter begins to say that, you know, we've got to cut consumption of energy. Um, not just that we have to shift out of it, but we have to cut consumption. And at the time it was unpopular and it's still pretty unpopular, but my God, is it absolutely central to getting out of, you know, some of those geopolitical struggles and, and, and not having wars. So I wish you'd talk about Jimmy Carter a bit and, yeah. and his relevance. He's still alive after all. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Carter's really, he's really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting presidency. Um, and, and, I remember, I was 
I, I, I guess I was, I was maybe 12, I think, uh, at the time when he gave the speech that came, became known as his Malay's speech. Oh, yeah. it, was 19, it was 1978, and I actually do have some memories of it um, from, the, uh, from the time. Uh, and this idea that he had basically destroyed his presidency because he'd said that there was Malay, he didn't actually use the word Malay, but he said there was basically some problem at the centre of America that just had to be almost like heroically faced. And the problem at the centre of America, he said, was energy. Uh, and then we faced an energy crisis that he said was a moral um, crisis. And he very much wanted to rebuild American, as he saw it, energy independence. So this point in 1970, when the United States um, effectively ends its a, a period of um, domestic self-sufficiency in oil, which is largely, not completely, but largely gone on for the entire time um, since oil, you know, since for the 20th century, mm. and have played a crucial part in turning the United States into the geopolitical power on which it um, had. When it came to an end, this is a big psychic shock. Yeah. I mean, before we even get on to the fact of the oil price shocks that come from the Middle East um, uh, and effectively the, the rationing of energy that, that, that's going on uh, in 1973 and then in, 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 in 1978 when Carter's giving um, his speech. And he says, look, we never again can be dependent upon foreign oil. We need to get out of that foreign dependence, dependency as, much, as quickly um, as possible. And one of the hopes that he has is, is that shale industry is going to, he says we have more shale than Saudi Arabia has oil or something like mm -hmm. that. But the other side of his story, the other side of what he wants to say, is, is that we just must consume less. Mm. Uh, he's also committed to renewable energy, puts solar panels on the, on the White House. Um, but this is the part of, of his narrative, that speech is very unpopular. And the pushback against it is, is that's not the American way. <laughs> Even so, when Ted Kennedy challenges um, Carter for the Democratic nomination um, that year, uh, and he's seen as being, in fact, he was on any number of issues to the left of Carter. But apparently the thing that pushed Kennedy into it was the Malay speech, because he also thought that isn't the American way. Yeah. You don't ask for sacrifice. You just find ways of producing more, be more technologically innovative. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that the card is interesting because he is engaging in some truth-telling. Um, yeah. There's some illusions, I think, in it as well, and the idea that America could be self-sufficient um, again. But he's trying to get people to take the energy question seriously. Yeah. No, I mean, the only thing I would say is, is if you look in, I would say in a way this goes all the way to the 1990, to the first Gulf War, there's much more willingness to talk about energy in straightforward terms in the 70s. And to some extent, I think it wanes a bit in the 80s. But you can still kind of see it in the first Gulf War, yes. where George Bush Sr., he's pretty explicit that this is about oil and protecting Western oil interests. Yeah. By the time you get to the second Iraq War, which certainly has an oil rationale, at least in part, then nobody wants to talk about that. It's all it's all about weapons of mass destruction, even though they're not there. Yeah. It's all about, you know, sporting um, democracy. I think that we've lost, in some sense, an ability to take energy seriously and talk about it. That was there, particularly in the 70s. But even if you say that's true, and I think there's something in it at least, 
Carter kind of stands out because he just wants to sort of say these are the choices that we yeah. that we have to make. And we do, we have to, and you know, it's going to be a, a narrative that we're going to have to develop right now. If we don't want to be dependent on the Putins of this world, mm. never mind if we want human civilization to survive climate breakdown. Um, so finally, before we go to our audience, I know they've desperate. Putin, Ukraine, and oil. Well, <laughs> just quickly. <laughs> I think that. What, one of the things that's really interesting that's happened so far, uh, and I, 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 when I say really interesting, I mean um, really interesting in terms of the fallout on the energy side yeah. uh, of the appalling events uh, happening, what's happening in Ukraine um, at the at the moment, is is that if we look on the gas side of things, actually European countries are probably this week imported even more gas from yeah. Russia. Than they did the week before yeah. the invasion, um, despite the fact that this momentous decision has been made by the German government, must be said, I think, pressurised by by the administration, not to certify the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and to say that Germany will build some liquid natural gas ports, which means it will be able to import import, import gas by sea borne from, the United, from States. the United States in particular. So that is a momentous development, I think. But in the short term, right now, this week's change absolutely nothing mm. in the sense of how much gas is being imported. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that all goes, obviously, to Putin's coffers in terms no, of protecting the Russian state. If you look at it on the oil side, by contrast, actually, um, there's been probably a, a fall of about a third mm -hmm. in Russian oil exports. Despite the fact that they're not under sanction, yeah. is, is that it seems that, particularly perhaps for the traders, they don't want, well, it's supposed to be more than the traders for the volumes involved, but they don't really want to touch Russian oil. Yeah. So if they can find some alternative to it, and okay. oil's less, got less, lot, fewer long term contracts like bound up with it, mm. then they're willing to do that. Yeah. But the consequence of that is, is that you know, the Europe price of oil being sold. In Europe, so the, what's called the Brent price is already at about $110 a barrel. $117. Was it under yeah, yeah, yeah. The last time I checked, yes, yeah, shows that I checked this morning. And the American one is sort of around the $100 a barrel. Now, the Biden Biden was having, a, I'm going to say a breakdown, but I don't mean that, extraordinarily, shall we say, agitated at oil prices going above $75 a barrel yeah. a few weeks ago or a month or so ago, and pressuring OPEC Plus um, to increase production to bring them down. It, the American, he, his administration, facing midterm elections this year and the precarious recovery from the uh, COVID, COVID cannot cope with oil prices at this yeah. um, level. But the problem about trying to heap more pressure on OPEC plus is, is that obviously the plus part of OPEC is Russia. Yeah. Uh, and so what happens in terms of whether the Saudis are really willing to break um, with Russia is a quite consequential. There's no evidence that they are so far. And the last time that Putin and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi um, crown prince, fell out about oil prices, it crashed them completely at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. And, and then actually 
the Americans and the Russians and the Saudis actually had to have a collective agreement to try to bring them um, bring them back up again. So I think that gas has had a lot of the attention so far, right? Um, um, because pipelines going through Ukraine are so central to that, and because of the decision that Schultz um, took. Yeah. But I, I, I think that much more attention needs to be paid on the on the on the on the oil side. Right. Well, um, thank you so much. And um, we're now going to open up questions from the audience here, but also all of you out there, um, please uh, don't be shy to put your questions into the chat. But also to stop it. But we'll start from for questions here in the real world. Oh. <laughs> um, Thank you for the talk. Um, one of the things that's so fascinating about your work in this, sorry, <laughs> one of the things that's so fascinating about your work, and this was true in this discussion as well, is the extent to which in telling these stories, you sort of strip away the politics of personality and the sort of day-to-day -day politics. And even speaking about Jimmy Carter, it almost sounds as though his attempts as American head of state were essentially still stymied by structural forces. And I'm wondering, certainly in the light of what's happening in the last few weeks, but just in general, how do you think about how much to incorporate individual political decisions and political personalities into your, into your analysis? Can we take a couple of more questions? Um, Helen, can you hold on? Yeah, sure, yeah. Are there any more questions from here? Yeah. Thank you. Um, firstly, I'd like to say thanks for the podcast. I'm certainly... <laughs> My Thursday mornings are not going to be the same without it. Um, my question is about Ukraine, and I just wonder if, if you're aware in, in the, the chain of events we have stopped where we are today, what would have been the event that we would have had to have done differently to avoid Putin invading Ukraine where he is now? Big question. Um, did everyone hear that? <laughs> yeah? Is there, is there another question? Right, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy, Tim Morgan. I'm never sure if he's a crank or not. Mm. No one ever seems to mention him, but I do read his blog sometimes. He writes this thing called Surplus Energy Economics. And he's got all these elaborate charts and everything. Anyway, he says that uh, when the Saudi oil was first discovered, you could you know, get 100 barrels of oil for kind of one barrel of energy efforts, if you like. And that ever since then, it's sort of gone down. And our ratio now of getting oil and energy products generally has, has declined and he says basically you know if you look through the, the long sweep of history gdp growth sort of maps onto surplus energy essentially you know how much energy effort do we have to make to get energy back and his idea is that basically you know low growth over the last sort of 30 years has been caused by this kind of declining effort the more effort we're having to put in to get energy out basically and i don't know if you i haven't read your book so you may mention it but i don't know if you have any sort of insights into that because i've been desperate to try and find someone some easier crank <laughs> okay so and if he's here questions. i apologize for using that word <laughs> okay um i'll i'll, t I'll take them um in order this is a difficult question obviously and I think that in this book that I haven't spent a lot of time on the individual political judgment of anybody. 
Um, and I've concentrated on big structural forces and big structural changes. And I think I've tried, like with the Brexit part of the book, for instance, to try to, in some sense, decenter David Cameron from the story uh, and sort of contextualize his choices in the dynamics that were set in motion on the one side, on the one hand, by the Eurozone crisis, and on the other by the problems of legitimating the Lisbon Treaty. I have written something else about that moment, so Cameron's decision making, that is much more focused on at what point could Cameron have made different choices and, than he did, and would things have turned out differently? And I, I like that kind of analysis too. Um, so I, I don't want to get into a position where I say that everything's about these big structural forces. But I think it's quite difficult to think about energy um, and spend a lot of time saying it's about individuals and personalities. Mm -hmm. I would still put one caveat to that. And I think that I do try to bring this out, at least even though I don't sort of draw lots of attention to it. Jimmy Carter's approach to America's energy problems in the 70s is very different than Ronald Reagan's approach, or at least the Carter administrations and the Reagan administrations. And they face the same predicament. Um, and Reagan just doesn't really take the energy and wanting energy independent, independence back again particularly seriously. He's fine to say, OK, we'll just import it from abroad and we'll deal with it as a foreign policy problem in the in the Middle East. So I don't think you can just say like with energy, it just determines um, things. Um, even here, which is where there's a lot of structural forces at work, there's still it still matters what political judgments are. Um, Main. On the Ukraine question, um, I think that there's something that's, well, I'm going to answer it slightly differently because I'm not entirely sure that I've got a sense of like when it could have turned out differently. But what I will say is, is that it's incoherent for Western policy towards Ukraine is incoherent for a long time. Uh, and in particular, it becomes incoherent after the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004-2005. Because at that point, a government comes to power in um, Ukraine when the presidential election is basically held again um, because of the fraud that have been clearly engaged in the, the first time round. Um, and the new Ukrainian president basically says, we want Ukraine to join the EU and we want Ukraine to join NATO. Um, and the European, most of the European countries, not Poland, obviously, but the older members of the European Union aren't very keen um, on this. Neither are they very keen on um, Ukraine joining NATO. So in 2008-9, when the so it's 2008 it is, when the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, with some support from the British, are pushing for NATO and Georgia to join NATO or to set in motion the process for them joining NATO. The French and the Germans like veto it 
And at the same time, though, almost like as a kind of payoff in a sense, is they say, well, we'll start negotiations about Ukraine having accession, sorry, associate membership of the of the European Union, not full membership of the European Union. But by this point as well, the, the Germans are already committed to Nord Stream 1 because that decision was one of the last decisions that the red-green government took with Gerhard Schroeder as Chancellor in 2005. And Merkel doesn't reverse that um, decision. So if we if we move to like by 2010, we've got a situation where if we just look at it through the lens of Germany for a moment, is Germany's broken with Ukraine on transit. It's encouraging it to have a strong economic relationship with the European Union and it's saying you can't join NATO. And that seems to me that wasn't that's just a mess. That that was never going to add up. So then if we go on to the like the 2014 crisis, when things come to a, a head that leads to Russia annexing um, Crimea, what we've got is, is that the Ukrainian government, sorry, the European Union trying to complete the association, associate membership agreement with um, Ukraine. Um, Ukraine being stuck in a financial crisis because this is the other undertold part of the Ukrainian story, just how, how terrible its economy has been doing for um, a long um, time. And the European Union not being willing to provide anything like the financial support that would have made it possible um, for the Ukrainian um, government under um, Yanukovych um, to, to pursue the, the, the associate um, membership. And if you think about it, every East European country, including the, the Baltics, that ended up joining the European Union, either they joined NATO first or they joined NATO at the same time as they joined the European Union. Now, this was taking the country which is most sensitive where the Russians are concerned. And I'm not saying this in, in, remotely to defend anything of the yeah. position on this, I'm just saying it's the most sensitive and to say, OK, we're going to try and integrate them economically into the European Union, albeit not by full membership, but we're not going to let them into NATO. Whereas the, the, being in NATO would have been a necessary condition of being able to take Ukraine economically um, to, with, the, with the European Union. Now, obviously, that sort of version of that associate membership did go through, but by this point, Ukraine's lost Crimea and it's lost control of you know, significant part of the of the Donbass um, region, and then it's in an extremely weak, has been in an extremely weak position since, um, in relation to the possibility of integrating Donbass back into actually in, in, into Ukraine. So I'm I'm not really sure like where you could stop the clock, so to speak, and say we just did this differently. But I do but isn't think there a point where they turn to Putin because they've been. For finance, they right? do. That's into that. That's what um, Yanukovych does in late 2013. But even if they, even if the EU and the um, and all the Americans had been much more financially generous, then yeah, I still think. It, I mean, that would have helped. Mm. But I still think it would have been a serious issue of saying, okay, we're going to try and do this, but we're not going to give Ukraine NATO membership. Um, now, I'm, I'm not saying that. NATO membership wouldn't have created a crisis in its own terms. It would because of Russia would have been a reaction um, to it. But you just can't do these things where you're simultaneously weakening Ukraine about the pipeline issue, which meant weakening its economy yeah. because the transit fees that Russia paid um, 
wouldn't be paid in the same um, way. Say no to NATO and say yes to associate membership. That's just incoherent. Can you just quickly address the spend? Yeah, oh, sorry, yeah, the, 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 yeah, sorry. But we've got others, I'm sure. Uh, okay. Um, I think I, I do know some of the, of, 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 I've read his blog a few times, I, I, to Morgan's blog. I, I don't know whether I'm persuaded by the, the overall sort of model that he's using in order to. Uh, explain the difficulties that uh, the energy situation has created. What I will say is this: I think that, and I try and tell this story in part in the in the second part of the book, in the economic story, um, is is that when we reach a situation which is like the middle of the 2000s, um, when the conjunction of stagnant oil production amongst the then principal oil producers or the, 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 yeah, the principal oil producers plus rising Asian demand in general and rising Chinese demand in particular lead to this astonishing rise of prices and prices in oil running up to the peak in middle of 2008 at about $150 um, a barrel. There's a whole set of economic problems and monetary problems in particular that are at play at that moment. And the only way out in the end of the oil supply side of that problem is the shale oil boom. And then the shale oil boom sort of reinforces in some sense monetary dysfunctionalities. If you go to 2015, um, by which point the Saudis have crashed the price of oil because they'd like to bankrupt shale oil um, producers. Oil prices have fallen so low that when the Federal Reserve wants to increase interest rates to try to normalize monetary policy after the crash, it can't because there's no inflation. It's kind of like desperate for some inflation um, by that um, point. And now I think we could we could already see actually this last autumn um, that the rise in oil prices that had already taken place was again starting to cause monetary problems. It's part of the reason why the Bank of England raised interest rates when it did. So if you ask me whether I think that there's oil problems that work their way through quite systematically into the economy and growth prospects and inflation prospects, my answer is definitely yes. If you ask me like whether that there's a way all this can be modelled uh, and that's ultimately all about the relationship between energy invested versus energy that comes out, then I, I'm at least agnostic, I would say. Right. Um, are there any more questions? We've got a bit more time. Um, right. And can I... The woman... Well, from the digital side first. Sorry? May we have a couple from... Uh, yes, oh, from, from beyond... Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, uh, beyond the horizon. Well, indeed. Um, we have uh, Despina asking, um, do you have an opinion on the question of the oil and gas surrounding Cyprus and the Turkish interests uh, in, in regarding Russia's new naming of the energy line to Turkey? Yeah, I actually have quite a section on the book, story part in the, of I have a section about the way in which the Eastern Mediterranean um, became another fault line in the European um, geopolitical scene during the 2000 and um, 
tens. I think that, and I think that this story is going to come. We're going to hear more about this in the in in the future. Um, in some sense, I think that there's a parallel all the way through the the geopolitics of the of post Cold War Europe between Ukraine's position and Turkey's position. Not because the problems that they face are the same, not even because the problems that they cause um, the European Union um, are the same, but they both involve, a set, they, they both get at these geopolitical fault lines in Europe around the relationship with Russia and NATO's position, because obviously this time Turkey is a, is a NATO member. Um, what you can see in these disputes um, that really uh, come to the fore in, from 2018 about these gas discoveries in the Eastern Mediterranean um, is, is that they really bring out Franco-Turkish tensions. And Macron um, becomes really, uh, well, let's just say he develops some quite strongly anti-Turkish rhetoric uh, and is very willing to um, commit France um, to the defence of, um, on a bilateral basis on top of NATO, uh, on the, to the, about, Cyprus, about Greece and Cyprus. And I think that if you look at this interview that Macron gave in, um, I think it was it was some it was sort of late 2019. He gave this interview to the Economist, in which he said, amongst other things, that NATO was brain dead, and that um, the crux of what he was saying was about Turkey's position, uh, and he was angry about Turkey's intervention in Syria, he was angry about Turkey's intervention in Libya, um, and he was angry about Turkish um, behaviour uh, in, in, the, in the Eastern Mediterranean because effectively Turkey has been, by partnerships of other countries, shut out of these gas discoveries given where they are in the, in the, in the Eastern um, Mediterranean. So I think that particularly in a context in which European countries want alternatives to Russian gas, the prospects for gas in the eastern Mediterranean are going to become ever more significant. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.